Good morning, River City. Good morning. Oh, thank you, guys. My name is Antramika Knight, and I have the pleasure to welcome you to River City this morning. Um, here at River City, we start each Sunday by reading from the lectionary, and it's a way for us to connect to the global church. Um, and you can find these same scriptures throughout the week, um, and the website is lectionarypage.net. And this week, the psalm is Psalm 107, and it's 1 through 9, and also verse 43. And it starts off by saying, O oh God, give thanks to the Lord. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Verse 43, whoever is wise, let him attend to the, these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. If we can bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love, which quenches our thirst, Father God. We long for you, even if we substitute it for other things. We thank you for this opportunity to gather as a community to worship, to hear the message. We pray for Dr. Green as he delivers the message today and shares the worship journey. We welcome Sarah and Josh back this Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So worship that truly forms us, turns us into the kind of people that look like what we just sang about Jesus looking like. So as we pray for people on the planet, in our churches, my, my stirring in my heart is that we would become a people that others can run straight into our arms unafraid, that every time they meet with us, they're met by love. That's the goal. We meet in this space, but we love in that space. So, Father, we ask as we begin to pray as a community that we would look outside of ourselves, that we would look outside of what's happening in this room, and that we would become the body of Christ on this planet, in this city, in Smyrna. Who wouldn't be met by love if they ran into our arms? Forgive us. Break our hearts to see that there's no type of human that coming towards you wouldn't be met by love and forgive us for thinking that we get to decide who wouldn't wouldn't be met by love in our city in our homes in our extended families in our nation help us to be that people today jesus thank you for a body that gathers together we have missed this jesus we love you we're going to do some prayers together. Father, we want to lift up the Church Universal right now. Everyone gathering in every room that they would gather around 
the Eucharist, that they would be formed like you, God, that they would go after becoming like you, God, that we would see the churches in this city even celebrate you today. I pray for every church that touches ours in this city, for Square Church, for Cumberland Community, for First United Methodist, for First Smyrna, Second Smyrna, Third and Fourth Smyrna, every Smyrna something we ask you to be in today. We ask in Atlanta too, God. Your holy Jesus. We pray, God, for the nation and all those in authority that you would have mercy on us as a nation, have mercy on our leaders, that you would move in their hearts, that they would rule with wisdom and justice, look for the common good of all people, regardless of race or background. We just pray that your spirit will be poured out on all flesh. We pray, God, for the welfare of the world and especially the horrific shootings that happened yesterday. We say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. For the people that have been affected in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio. For those that have lost loved ones. For those who are injured. For those who are related to the killers, have mercy. God, have mercy. We pray for situations around the world, the shootings in California, the fires that are raging in Siberia, the terrorist threats in India, for famines and storms, for the principalities and powers that still rule, for systems of oppression, for tension among races. God, we say, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Will you move upon our hearts to be carriers of that mercy, carriers of that justice, that our words would speak life and love and reconciliation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we lift up the concerns of our local community that we would begin to see your kingdom permeate all of those things, that we would be a people that carries it into those places and that you would teach us how to be a part. God, help us to be a teachable people that move into our city and hear and listen and learn and begin to walk with you into those places that are dark or we're afraid of. We lift up the homelessness in Smyrna. We lift up the classism in Smyrna. We lift up the racial divide in Smyrna. We lift up everything that is happening in our city. Help us to become so aware of those things that we can listen for you in the ways that you want us to move into them. And if you're here and you are enduring some suffering or trouble or you know someone who is suffering and in trouble, if you'll raise your hand. God, we intercede on behalf of those who bear heavy burdens. There be sickness of mind or body, soul or spirit. Will you be the God who comforts? 
Will you be a God who heals? Will you be the God who brings a peace that passes all understanding? And for those of us who know those who are in trouble, will you give us the ability to just be with and not try to fix? Will you help us hold our tongues when we want to make promises that are not our promises to make? And instead, give us the ability to speak wisdom and speak life and encouragement. Will you give us the ability to hug and to hold each other despite the awkwardness? Will you help us not to be, help us not to be afraid of suffering? For even you, God, sat in our suffering and sat in our mess. You are not afraid to be Emmanuel, God with us. And so as followers of Christ, help us to be with those who are suffering, those who are in trouble, those who are dirty and broken, only by the power of your Holy Spirit. We're just going to close by lifting up the pots, which there's a little pamphlet down here that talk about the things our church is praying into as a community and asking God to do. And so you can get, get one of these during meet and greet if you'd like, but I'll, I'll pray over them right now. Jesus, we thank you for helping us to sense and see how you're moving, specifically for River City. We don't want this to just be about us, God. We're not trying to build something, make a name for ourselves. We just are collectively asking you to answer these prayers. And so we lift them up to you and we ask that you would teach us how to be faithful as we steward what you've given us, that you would Teach us how to be a part of the body of Christ in the ways that you're asking and that you would renew a sense of what the vision and mission is for the body of Christ at Smyrna. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we get to, really for me, uh, I was talking to Sarah last night on our way back from the Stokes wedding. I know you know a lot of them. Um, they're a part of our community, and they are in Macon right now. But I've never been someone who, and I'm gonna, I'm really gonna set Dr. Green up to be awesome. Like there's, there's no way you're gonna preach as good as I'm about to tell you. So I've never been. I've always been hesitant to have people I, I follow. Like, I, and that's probably a flaw in myself that there's not a lot of preachers I can listen to. And it's not because I'm better, because absolutely most preachers are better than I am. But I just have this thing, and there's a couple people that um, have influenced me through their words before I've even known them. And, I, and Sarah and I were on our way back last night, and I was like, you know what? I think if you said to me, you can have any famous person, any person that you've heard about, or any preacher come to your church, I literally, and, you, and I, they said you can have any amount of money to do that, I would choose Dr. Green, for sure. Like, that's not a... I'm not just trying to beef that up. And it's because he's been extremely formative in helping us to think in ways that we haven't thought before. Challenges outside of the way that we think things are into a deeper type of narrative and a deeper type of thought. And it's been helpful to us. It's almost been, I think Sarah would say this, really something that's helped us feel excited about what we're continuing to do. And so today, there's no way for you to live up to that, but... I do ask that you guys would be honoring and thoughtful, and I don't want him to feel rushed. So let's pray real quick. Father, I just thank you for the greens. Christian Julie are uh, gems to us and loving and caring and kind in all the right ways and challenging and 
and hopeful and speak truth in all the right ways to the best of their ability. And I just pray that today Dr. Green would um, feel at home and that we would honor that space well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Good to be back. Thanks for that albatross around my neck that I'll never be able to live up to. So my wife and I drove in yesterday and got to the hotel about 4 o'clock, and I started to work, and she flipped on the TV, and there was a terrible movie on. But starred Denzel Washington. So when Denzel Washington's in a movie, you watch it whether it's a good movie or not, right? Can I get an amen? My wife is sure going to watch it when <laughs> Denzel Washington is in it. And it was Deja Vu. It's a movie from a long time ago. If you love that movie, I'm sorry. It's, it's not a good movie, I'd n but I'd never seen it. And so I stopped working, and we watched the movie. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's about time travel, and yeah, it doesn't make sense. But there's a line in the movie which he says to her first, and she says to and the line is this, what would you say to someone if you had to say something to them that you knew they wouldn't believe? What would you just say to someone if you had to say something that you knew they wouldn't believe? And of course, it's all cute, and it's Denzel Washington. So as my wife said, if Denzel said that to me, I would just believe him. <laughs> right? Yeah, of course you would. But what do you, what, so this is the question we need to ask. What would you say to someone if you had to say something you knew they wouldn't believe? Right? Because that's what condition all of us are in. So I, I think this is the first time I've ever done this, what I'm going to do this morning, is I'm going to preach a sermon that's not to you, but it's for you. And it's mostly about what you're going to need to say to others. And so essentially, what I'm going to say to you, you need to internalize, pray about, soak in, and then you're going to have to speak it to other people. I, I think that's what my task is. It's not so much to change your mind about something. I expect that I will say very little this morning that you disagree with. I could be completely wrong. I've been very wrong before. This week, I've been very wrong. So I could be very wrong about this. But my sense is that I'm not going to say much that you're going to disagree with. But there are lots of people you know who would disagree strongly. with Does that make sense? Right, so what I'm going to share with you, you're going to find yourself mostly agreeing, I think, but then you're going to think about Bob and Sandy and Tim and Rhonda, and you're going to realize they would kill us if they knew we were. At least they would get on Facebook and rage about it. And I want us to, to think about it. Josh, you said something earlier. You said, we meet in here, we love out there. So this sermon is just about learning how to love, how, how, how to be present how to think and talk and engage with you. So the text is Colossians 3. I'm going to talk about racism, which is not smart on your second visit to a church, a church that you don't know terribly well. Like I said, I might not get invited back. But I, my sense is, from what I know about Josh and Sarah and what I can sense in the room, I think this is a community where there's a lot of agreement about that, I think. You never really know, but I think. But I know that this, this part of the world 
is not a place for this room. So even if this room is safe, you don't have to go very far outside this room for it not to be safe. And I think that we have to be discerning, insightful about how to engage this topic, but it has to be engaged. And I had planned to talk about this anyway since Josh had asked me, but the light, in light of the events of yesterday, it just is all the more pressing that we live in a time when racial hostility is not just verbal, which is destructive enough on its own. Right? Scripture says that to speak against someone is to murder them. So it's not as if there's something acceptable about racial prejudice and hate in speech. But it isn't only speech. Right? There, there are men and women, mostly men, who, mostly white men, who are willing to kill for their ideas. And the church has to confront that. So this is my attempt to do that. The last thing I'll say in terms of qualification, I do this as a white man. I, I have very rarely in my life been victim of prejudice and never the victim of racial prejudice, not once. No one's ever mistreated me because I I've been mistreated. Sometime I'll tell you about the story about how I accidentally was locked up in a facility for three days. It really was accidental, um, but I couldn't get out because of the laws in Florida. Long story. But I, I have suffered, and yeah, my wife is telling me to shut up and go. I realize I just sound crazy now. You're all like, yeah, sure, it was an accident. But... I have been the subject of prejudice, but not racial prejudice, not, not once in my life. So I don't know what that's like from the inside. But I do know what God has opened my eyes to see and what I see in my own So I'm speaking from, from that place. So Colossians 3. Let's start in verse 9. And we're going to read a short section here. I'll talk for a little bit, and then we'll come back to this passage and look a little more broadly in context. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self. So you've put off an old self, you've put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. You're being made like the creator. You're being made like God. This is the prayer that your pastors just pray, God, make us like you are. Make us love like you live like you live. Be present like you're present. So we're, we're being made into the image of God. In that renewal, in the renewal of being made like God, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, this text, of course, was written 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been reading this text and preaching this text. But our world still does not reflect this reality. Smyrna does not reflect this reality. Around this room, there is some hint of it. Right? There's, a, there's a, a kind of faint smell of it. But even in here, it's not realized. This is the vision that God gives in Christ. 
that in him there is a renewal of everyone and everything into the likeness of God. Everyone and everything is meant to share in the fullness of the life of God. And that's what we envision. You know, churches sometimes set themselves visions, right? We want to accomplish this. But they always set their vision far too short. It's far too small. Because we're not looking to do change our neighborhood or to even to change the world. We're looking to see everyone and everything renewed in the image of God. Nothing less than that is our vision. Nothing less than that is what we're praying for. But if we are all renewed in the image of God, and Christ is all and in all, then that means there will no longer be these distinctions. And Paul lists them. He, he, he lists these same distinctions in other places. But here he says, in this renewal there is no Greek and Jew. There's no circumcised and uncircumcised. There's no barbarian, Scythian. There's no slave and free. So let's talk a little bit about distinctions. There are, I think, a, several types of distinctions that have been created. We'll start with the ones God made. If you read the Genesis creation story, everything begins with distinction. God separates the light from the darkness, separates the land from the sea, separates the sky from the ground. Right? So there are these distinctions that begin. And then, of course, when he comes to human beings, the distinction is male to female. Right? God makes males, God makes females, and makes them for each other. So that is a kind of God-made God-designed distinction. In the course of God's work in saving the world after the fall, God makes another distinction, and that is the distinction between Jew and Gentile. He calls Abraham out of the nation to be a nation for the sake of the nation. He calls Abraham out in order to be God's partner in saving everyone else. The elect are elect for the sake of the non-elect. So Abraham is called out, but not called out so that he and God alone can enjoy blessing, but so that he can be blessed by God to bless all the nations of the earth. I have blessed you to be a blessing. So the first thing God teaches us about distinction is that distinction is for the sake of blessing. That's God's distinctions are for the sake of blessing. Male and female, bless the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Make this earth blessed. And Jew and Gentile, Jews, bless all the nations of the earth. So those are the distinctions God has made. And then we made distinctions. And we made distinctions that I think we might call prudent distinctions. And then we made what I will call foolish or wicked distinctions. So we made distinctions like rich and poor. God didn't make that. We made that. And in some ways, you can see why it would happen. You can see some people are just better at life than other people are. And usually, as a rule, this is what the book of, the Pro book of Proverbs is about, usually people who are better at life end up with more money, generally. Not always. There are exceptions. But generally, that's how it works. Right? And then there are the people like me who aren't good at life. Right? And we have to marry people who aren't good at life. And so there's, there's, there's some reason for making these decisions. But of course, that rich and poor distinction very quickly becomes toxic. And the history, not just of our country, but the history of all countries, 
is a history of violence between the rich and the poor. Almost always, the scripture said, from the rich to the poor. I mean, scripture is unrelentingly clear about this. The rich are almost always, nine times out of ten, it's the rich who are violating the poor, not the other way. And the, this is why God is so often identified with them, because he's taking the side of those who are being and this was true in ancient Israel, this was true in ancient Rome, this is true in ancient Greece, and this is true in contemporary America. And it's true all around the world. So that rich-poor distinction is not one that God has made. It's not one that God intends to remain. Now I know you're going to immediately think of the, the poor you have with you always, but that is not in some way a God declaring his will. It's God speaking to our unwillingness to let his will be done. The poor you have with you always is not some kind of approbation from God. It's a condemnation of our unfaithfulness, our unwillingness to make the world what it should be. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of the things I'm going to say today, but if you want to talk about that more, I'm happy to. After the service. But that rich-poor distinction is now a toxic And even at its best, the rich-poor distinction leads to philanthropy. But the problem with philanthropy is where the rich, right, give to the poor. But they give to the poor in such a way that at the end of the day, the rich remain rich and the poor remain poor. That's not what Christians are called to. We're not called to philanthropy. We're called to charity. We're not called to give in such a way that all of our lives really stay the same. We're called to give in such a way that all of our lives are brought together into the blessing. It's, it's one thing to give people out of your riches and not to any way have your life or their life fundamentally. Christian giving is a kind of giving that changes you and them. If you doubt me, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Not right now, wait a minute. But after service, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Read it with your eyes and heart and see what Paul is saying about giving. Christian giving will change you, the giver, and it will change the person to whom you're giving. Philanthropy does not. Philanthropy is just another way of securing that same distinction between rich and poor. Philanthropy is better than oppression. So if you're going to be rich, at least be philanthropic about it. But that's not yet what God envisions. That's not the renewal of all things in Christ. Because Christ is the poor. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. Christ is all and in all. Okay, I'm not going to say that. Julie, you can be proud. I skipped that. So we make the rich and poor distinction. Then we make this distinction between barbarian and civilized. So interestingly, in this passage, Paul uses two different terms for barbarian. Barbarians and Scythians. So Scythians were the barbarians of the barbarians. They're the worst people in the ancient world. Something like what comes to mind for us when we think about Vikings. So the Scythians were called Scythians because... They scalped their enemies when they killed them. And that's where their name, Scythian, comes from. And so they were known, so in, in Paul's world, there were the Greeks, who were the civilized people. There were the barbarians, which is everybody else. And then there were the Scythians, who even the barbarians thought were barbarians. So Paul says, this is a distinction God has overcome, because this is a distinction we have made. And it's closely tied up with the rich and the poor distinction. That the rich are the civilized ones, and the poor are the barbarians. 
score specifically. And again, you can kind of understand how people got there in the first place, that there are destructive people in the world. I mean, this 21-year-old man yesterday who killed 20 people in El Paso, that's barbaric. I mean, there are barbaric people in the world. And you can understand how if people aren't thinking Christianly, if they aren't thinking in the spirit, it would be easy to say, well, there are in the world people who are bad and people who are good. There are people who are bad and they're barbarians, and there are people like us who live life well, and we are civilized and we're above that. The problem is, if you know any history at all, you understand that civilized people are still wicked. In fact, they're just sophisticated in their wickedness. And barbarians turn out not to be nearly as barbaric as you think they are, and not nearly as wicked as you assume they are. So just like the rich and the poor distinction, that civilized barbarian distinction becomes the source of all kinds of things, all kinds of oppression. And so God, when he comes among us, often comes among us from, the, from among the barbarians, right? So when, when the gospel breaks forth, it does not break forth amongst the Jews, but amongst Greeks, amongst Greeks and barbarians. And what Paul is saying here would have been astonishing in his world. And it's no less astonishing now. We're saying no matter who those people are that you think of as the radicals, those distinctions don't exist for Christians. Now this is where being a Christian and being a human being trying to get by in the world can start to rub against each other. Like it does in the Sermon on the Mount over and over where Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek, right? So there's our our natural response, the response that's ingrained in us, is when we're struck, to strike back. But Jesus says there's your natural response, and then there's the holy response. There's the response of the Holy Spirit in you. And that's not your natural human response. So part of being a Christian, part of the difficulty of being a Christian, is that you're always in this conflict between what you would naturally do and what God's life in you wants to do. There's what I would want to do, and then there's what Christ in me wants. And, and my life of faith is a life of yielding to what Christ wants me to do rather than what I want to do, right? With me so far? If you're not with me this far, we're in trouble because this is, this, is this is the part nobody can disagree with, I think. So that leads to this distinction of slave. Because once you have this idea that the world is split into Greeks and barbarians, rich and poor, it's easy to think that the poor barbarians, all they really deserve is to serve the rich civilized. And it's at this point that we've utterly dehumanized someone. Right? So notice that we've got a degradation here. Rich and poor, there's still humanity for both of them. The humans, the, the poor are just not living up to their full potential. But when you move from rich and poor to civilized and uncivilized, you're starting to call their humanity. Are these people really as human as you? And when you come to slave, or master and slave, their humanity is gone. In the ancient world, Aristotle, who's you know, a philosopher who defines slavery, says slavery is just the, the human embodiment of a tool. A slave is just a tool. A thing. He says an inanimate tool is is made a slave by a hand, craftsman, carpenter. And a human who's made a slave is the tool of the master. 
So humanity is completely gone at this point. Now that slave-free distinction brings me to our story. Because we are standing in a city whose history is a history of blood. And a history of this the blood of slave and slave. And every one of us in this room has inherited that story. Whether we want to or not, whether we understand what to do with it or not, that is our story. That is who we are. And we have all kind of agreed that that was bad, capital B, but we've never really told the truth about what it was, what it means, and what it means now, and what we're going to do about it. Much less acted to do anything about the wrongs we've made. I, I think this is the fundamental distinction I need to make before we go on. So I want you to think about the difference between racism, capital R, and racism, lowercase r. So one of the things that kills conversation, no matter where you are, no matter who you're engaging with, is if you start to use terms in such an absolute, unnuanced sense that everything is all or nothing. And one of the reasons we can't have a real conversation about racism in this country is that everybody uses the word racism as a capital R word, as if we all know what it means, we all agree about what it means, and it's always the same thing in every case. But that's not how racism, lowercase r, actually works. There are malicious, hateful, racist people, like this 21-year-old man yesterday who killed those people. But there are few of those people. There aren't many of them. I mean, there are too many, but there aren't many. There are other people who are well-intentioned, but still racist. I mean, they're paternalistic. You know those people who... Do you guys know what mansplaining is? That's where a man says to a woman something that is obvious, but he just thinks he has to say it because she's a woman, right? There are people like that, but about race. Right? These are the people who say, I have black friends, what are you talking to me about? They're well-intentioned, they're not killers, they're not murderers, but they are wholly ignorant of what's actually taking place in the world and of their own complicity. Most of the people you know fit in that category. They are good-hearted people, and I'll say more in a moment about when that good-heartedness shows itself, like after a catastrophe. Those people will rally, because their hearts really are good. But in an unguarded moment, you can hear the racism that's in them. I could give you examples, but I don't want to, I really don't want to traumatize or trigger anyone. But I mean, I've grown up around this all of my life. Most of the people I've known fit into this category. They are good people. Some of the people I would say are the godliest people I know. I've heard them tell racist jokes. I've heard them tell racist jokes to people of color and seen people of color laugh with them. Because what are you going to do in a world where it's dominated by white presence? And everybody went away from that situation feeling as if nothing bad had happened. It happened at my university, since I've been teaching there. So I'm not, this is, for me, I'm not talking about abstractions about what happens in rural Oklahoma or rural Georgia. 
I'm talking about stuff that's happening around you all the time, every day. Just this morning on Twitter, one of my good friends, Antipas Harris, who is a pastor in Texas, talked about yesterday he was in a restaurant, and this old man came in with his family and was flirting with the waitress and said something funny, and Antipas laughed. So the, the man at the table with his family, like a grandpa with a whole family, the grandpa says something funny to the waitress about her being cute. And Antipas laughs, and the man turns to him and says, what are you laughing at? But I'm not talking about, and I guarantee you that man goes to some first, second, third, fourth, or fifth Baptist church <laughs> in, in Dallas. I guarantee you, if you ask people about that man, that, whoever that old man was, they'll say he's a good man. Pays his bills, good to his neighbors, loves his family. But racism can live in a good heart. Don't you ever tell yourself it can't. Racism can live in a good heart. But here's the problem. There are also people who are racist and they're trying not to be. But they still are. And there are a few of these people, but it's, it's agonizing. And I think I spend most of my time here, personally. And that I'm, God has brought me to a point of awareness where I can't deny what I see in these other groups. But I've been trained to live life a certain way. And those habits are in me. So even though I would never tell a racist joke or laugh at a racist joke, I still don't know what to do to make sure the racist joke never gets told in the first place. And I don't quite know what to do when it's done. When that happened to me at my university the other day, I didn't know what to do. I'm sitting there beside another professor, a black professor, and a colleague of ours walks up, makes a racist joke to this man sitting beside me, and I was frozen. I didn't know what to do. The black man beside me laughed, and I knew they knew each other, and I thought, maybe I'm misunderstanding what's happening here, and I just started crying. I didn't know what to do. And so the fact of the matter is, even though I think my heart was in the right place. I didn't actually change anything about what actually happened. I still don't know what my friend, what my colleague felt or thought in that. So even though I was as well-intentioned as I know how to be, notice, I didn't change anything. So if even at that point, when you are aware and you are trying to be a friend, you are trying to be loving, if even at that point you don't change anything, Think about how much reinforcement and reenactment of these things happen to people who are well-intentioned but ignorant and people who are malicious. I thought you were all going to agree with me. I'm going to just keep assuming that. Racism is, is actually not that old. Oppression is as old as there are human beings. As long as there have been human beings in the world, they've been oppressing but racism, as you and I know it, is actually just a few hundred years old. And it was invented by white philosophers and preachers, and scientists, and politicians, of course, always politicians, to justify what they were doing to people of color around the world. So European, European empires invented racism as a way of explaining why they had the right to do what they were doing in Latin America and Africa and Asia. 
that idea of racism is just there to support the belief that some people are superior to other people. And that belief is at the heart of sin. And what Paul is saying Christ has done is Christ has destroyed that lie that some people are superior to other people. Christ is all and in all. Anything I do to anyone, I'm doing to Jesus. Yesterday in that restaurant in Dallas, Texas, that old man who thinks of himself as a Christian turned and looked at Jesus and called Jesus an ape. That's what happened. That's actually what happened. In my university, I'm sitting there in the faculty meeting, and my colleague walks up to Jesus and makes a racist joke to Jesus. And I stood there and didn't do anything about it because I didn't know what to do. That's the reality of the gospel. So if we're going to uproot racism, we have to know the history. We have to know what we're talking about. We also have to realize that the spirit behind racism is the spirit of superiority. The spirit that some people deserve more than other people do. Some people are just better and more blessed by God than other people are blessed. And it's ultimately rooted in the belief that God is our superior. And I'm going to end there in just a moment, but let me say just a few things. Everybody still with me? All right, so let me take you back to the text. Now, from this point on, it gets more difficult. And this is what, when you're talking to other people, is going to be really hard to communicate. Look at verse 5. Let's start in verse 5. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. These are the ways you once lived. Put that to death. Put that away. Now notice the sins he lists. Fornication, that's always first. Impurity, which I assume is just another way of saying the same thing. Passion, same thing. Evil desire, same thing. And greed. So four sexual sins and greed, right? Put those things away. We know what Paul had on his mind the day he wrote this. Put those things away. Now, come to verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, Clothe yourselves with kindness, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then, finally, in verse 16, or 14, I can't see. I'm 42, my eyes are going, and the doctor lets me know it's going to get worse every year. So, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in harmony. We have three different movements here. First of all, we've got the putting away of unrighteousness. We've got mercy toward those who are difficult, toward those who are hard. You have patience, kindness, and compassion. You're showing mercy toward those in need. And then we have love. The problem with the history of Christianity in North America, and the reason that we've never actually dealt with racism, is that we've only been concerned about the first thing and occasionally with the second thing. In other words, we're concerned only with doing away with wrongdoing, doing away with unrighteousness, 
So we preach against smoking, drinking, cursing, and watching R-rated movies, unless it's The Passion of the Christ, and then you have to watch it. Or it's a sin if you don't. The, we, we preach against unrighteousness. Occasionally, we will call people to be people of mercy. But here's what we've never done. We've never called people to do justice. And here's the difference. Remember I told you about this large group of people who are well-intentioned but still very destructive because they still believe in superiority. They still believe some people are better than others. They still believe America is the greatest country in the world. Which every time you hear that, recognize the spirit of superiority. That person isn't evil, but that statement is evil. Because it's birthed out of this belief that, that God loves some more than others. That some receive God's blessing and others receive God's curse. And once you believe that, you can justify anything. You can justify slavery at that point. You can justify treating another human being, treating Jesus as your property. Once you believe in superiority. So every statement that suggests superiority, immediately be suspicious of it. Where is that coming from? Because it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. Christ is all and in all. Not in some, not in some more than others, but he is all in all. Right? That does away with superiority. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Well, what does that mean? That means there's no first and last. Because if the first are last, and it stays that way, well, then the first and the first and the last are last. But the only way it can be true that the first are last and that the last are first is that there's no longer any such thing as first and last. God has unmade the world as we know it, and we haven't caught up with him yet. In God's world, there is no Jew and Greek, but we still live as if there is. In God's world, there's no barbarian and civilized, but we still live as if there is. There's no slave and free, but we still live as if there is. And notice this about this passage. Look at verse, this is verse, come on, where is it? 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Now that should stop you in your tracks. Because Paul just said, there is no slave. And now he's talking to slaves. And what has happened, almost without exception, there are exceptions, and I'm, I'd love to talk about them, but not today. There, almost without exception, what Christians have done is say, yes, Jesus did that, but that's true spiritually. It doesn't actually have anything to do with the way we live our lives. And it's that kind of thinking that makes people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield capable of being Preachers who are winning thousands to Jesus while they own slaves. George Whitfield preached to slaves, believed in the conversion of slaves, and believed that once slaves were converted, they should be better slaves. Now, how do you get to the place that you say Jesus set you free, but it isn't going to matter for your life? Now, it, it matters for my life. I'm not the slave. Notice the one preaching is free. Those white men who own slaves believe that they were truly free. But the black slaves they owned could be free in Jesus, 
but not really free. I was teaching the class at ORU, and a couple of girls in the class got in an argument, and it escalated really quickly. And they were standing and screaming at each other, and then one of them said to the other, I love you, but I hate the devil in you. Which is just another way of saying I hate you. Right? That, that's, that's just hate. Right? You don't get around it by saying I hate the devil in you. Right? There's, yeah. There's, there's this problem we have in which we, we're, we found cute ways of talking that obscure the fact we're not obeying Jesus. You can say all you want that people are free. If it doesn't actually affect their life, you don't mean it. If you can preach a message to slaves that they're free in Christ and then send them back to the fields, you don't believe it. Now, of course, we're not dealing with slavery. But we are dealing with the same ideas that made slavery possible in the first place. Because hear me, in this part of the world, the racism that made slavery possible is still alive and well. Just because slavery is over with doesn't mean that that racist ideology is over with. Because the spirit of superiority is alive and well. In fact, I feel like the Lord has shown me a few things about this, and I'll share these with you and be, and be done. The first one is, the Lord direct, directed my attention, I think, to the story Jesus tells about his generation. He says, this generation is like a, a demon who is cast out of a man, and then wanders in the desert and finds no place to rest. Comes back to the man and finds that the man's heart is empty and unfurnished. Goes and finds seven other spirits worse than himself and takes up residence again. That is what happened to racism. It's worse now. It's more subtle now. Now you have churches filled with people who would never own slaves and, and, never de and deny that they're racist. But their racism is sevenfold. And it's sevenfold because they never did justice. Notice the man is empty. He's swept, he's clean, but he's unfurnished. Because acts of mercy can clean away the damage, but only justice will fill the house. And what has happened in American society over and over and over again is we have this racist demonic belief that leads to the oppression and the destruction of people's lives, and then good people recognize that destruction, they respond in mercy, they try to do what they can to help and be merciful, but they never do justice. They just show mercy. And therefore we are vulnerable to more and more and more possession. Because until you actually change laws, habits, social conventions, until you change the way our lives are actually lived, you've not done anything, really. Imagine if you woke up and you found a child in your yard beaten. What would you do? I mean, you would call 911, you would call the police, ambulance, you would rush in, you would clean the child's wounds, you would care for it. Now imagine you wake up the next morning and there are two children, two other children, also beaten and left for dead. What would you do? You'd care for them. At what point would you start to ask the question, who's doing this to these kids? 
Because mercy is about bandaging the wounded. Justice is about stopping the destruction. And there's a certain kind of mercy that becomes something else. When you just keep, if, if the third morning you wake up and there are three children in your yard, and you don't try to find out who's doing this to these kids, you don't really care about anybody. And the thing is, we've been living with slavery for hundreds of years, and racism for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, people have been washing up on our shores, literally and figuratively. And we've tried to bandage wounds as Christians. It's time to do more than bandage wounds. Don't stop bandaging wounds, but do more than that. Find out who's killing these people and wounding them. And stop it. Now, I agree. Right? You agree. I, say, I believe you agree. with me. I'm not trying to preach to you. But these are the things you're going to have to convince other people of. Because we could stop it. The thing is, we could change this. Racism is not unavoidable. It can end. It can end in our lifetime. At some point, it will end. And it will either end because God's kingdom is victorious over it or because some greater evil takes its place. But it will end. And if we want it to end, then we have to do more than show mercy. Not less than that. I'm going to say more about it in a moment. Not less than mercy, but we have to do justice. We have to do what we can to change laws, change training. My dad was a police officer. My dad and I have had this conversation many times. My dad is a conservative, middle America man. And so he and I don't see eye to eye on everything. But one of the things I've talked about for hours with him is, what do we do to change the way that police officers do what they do? Because people are being destroyed by what they're doing. And other people are being saved by what they're doing. Now, how do we make it so that fewer people are destroyed and more people are saved? Don't, not just show up in the aftermath and show mercy. Not just after someone else has been killed. Say, that shouldn't have happened. Before the person is killed, do something to change the way that policing takes place. And hear me, it won't be because they become more Christian. The history of slavery in the United States is entirely the history of Christians owning Africans and Native Americans. They've always been Christians. You hear me? It's not being Christian won't change any of that at all. Our whole history is a Christian history. Christians killed Native Americans. Christians enslaved Africans. Christians enacted Jim Crow. I mean, Christian, being Christian isn't enough. You have to be like Jesus. That's the goal. And the only way to be like Jesus is to live in the world in such a way that things change. Not thoughts and prayers. Real change. So here's another thing I realized. I, I feel like the Lord showed me. You will never be able to do justice, though, until you know at least to have mercy. And really, really, really see mercy that's needed. This is what I think is happening. Again, I doubt there's anyone in this room. But I promise you, you know people who don't believe that racism is a problem. They don't believe that there is a racial injustice in our history, or certainly in our present. They don't believe it. And this is what the Lord said to me. They don't believe it because they've never seen the wounds. 
And they've not seen the wounds because they will not ask. Thomas is in the room, the disciples. You know, Jesus had appeared the previous week. Thomas shows up. They say, we've seen Jesus. Thomas says, I don't believe it until I see the wounds. And then Jesus appears, touch me. And then Jesus says, it would have been better if you had believed without seeing the wounds. But here are the wounds. The problem is, most of the people you know, and in this case, most of the white people you know, but not, not exclusively, but mostly, most of the white people you know, they don't believe that racism is as bad as I'm seeing. I know this because I say this a lot, and I get a lot of response, in- encouragement from people. And overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, what I get is it's not as bad as you think. The reason they're saying that is they've never seen the wounds. So what they're really doing is doubting not Jesus' resurrection. They're doubting the truthfulness of what what people of color are saying about what they're experiencing. At heart, the refusal to look at the wounds to call everybody a liar who says they're being hurt. When people of color, black, brown, Asian, native, whatever, whoever they are, when those people say, you're wounding us, and we say, no, we're not. We're calling them liars, which is just another way of wounding them. So here's what you need to convince your brothers and sisters and moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas to do. Pray until they see the wounds. They need to see the wounds. Because here's the thing. Those are Jesus' wounds. Those are wounds in Jesus' body. Everything done against a person of color in the history of this country was done to Jesus. By people who claim to love him. They need to see that. They need to know that. They need to recognize that's what they've done. That's what we've done. That's what I've done. And when they see the wounds, when they really see the wounds and recognize not only the woundedness, but the grace with which that woundedness has been carried, then they'll be ready to do justice. And doing justice looks like this. So let's go back to that scheme. Unrighteous speech is... Speech that is, you know, we, we identified that as cursing mostly. Say mean things. It's not enough to put that away. You have to have merciful speech. But merciful speech can still be condescending speech. And it's not enough to be merciful to people with your speech. You have to do justice. And doing justice is mostly about what you say and what you don't allow others to say about you. And here's the difference. Mercy listens. Mercy offers comfort. Mercy consoles. But justice confronts. Now, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I believe the Lord is leading me to a place where the next time a white colleague of mine walks up and makes a racist joke to a black colleague of mine, 
the Holy Spirit will enlighten me to know what to say, what to do. And I'm not going to be satisfied until I know that that can happen. Because that's justice. Mercy would have been to turn to my friend and say, I'm sorry he did that. Which would have been good, but not nearly enough. Justice is to talk to both of them in a way that makes sure that never happens again. You, you hear the difference? It's not enough that I don't say damn and hell. I do, actually. But I mean, if I didn't, that wouldn't be enough. I have to come to the place that I say, I'm sorry that happened. to you. And for a lot of people in your life, it would be a giant leap toward godliness if they could just look at people of color and say, I'm sorry that that happened. To you. I'm sorry that that is happening. But that's still not enough. We have to say to other people, stop doing this to them. I lost my sanctification the other day because uh, I work in, um, in Pentecostal circles and there was a Pentecostal denomination that put out a call for civility. And the call for civility was, uh, it made me very uncivil. Because it was aimed to at people to protect the president. It was clearly a, a case of denominational officials rallying to presidential and political figures to defend it. I mean, it was unabashedly that. And what angered me about it is that we do need a call for civility. I mean, speech in our country is radically out of control. We're saying that to the wrong people. The people who need to hear the call to civility are the people in power. You don't need to be more civil. They do. You're, I mean, it's, we've got it exactly backwards. We're telling people to pray for their leaders. No, leaders should be praying for us. It's not our job to pray that they do it well. They're responsible for us. They're answering to God for what they do for us. They should be praying for us far more than we're praying for them. I'm not going to answer to God for them. They're going to answer to God for me. We've got this exactly backwards. And justice is about calling those things out in the Spirit of Christ. And here's the thing, most Christians don't believe that's possible. Most of the white Christians you know don't believe that's possible. They don't actually believe that you can say hard things without being mean. You know why they don't believe it? Because they've never seen it. All they've seen is hateful speech and merciful speech. They don't know what it's like to hear somebody say something just that's also loving. So do that for them. Show them that the Spirit of Jesus in you can love someone enough to speak the truth. And not just mercifully, justly. This is what the prophets did. This is what Jesus did. This is what the apostles did. This is what we have to do. You all still agree with me? Everybody still, uh, everybody okay? This is what it's time for, and this will actually change things. Mercy will never change the injustice. No matter how many wounds you bandage, until you stop the people who are breaking these people, they will keep getting broken. You've got to stop the problem at its source. And the source is not with the people who are being victimized. Again, my dad was a police officer. He taught me certain things about what to do if I was pulled over. But in a situation where you have a person of authority, 
whether it's a police officer or a politician or a preacher or whomever, the weight of responsibility is not on the weaker person. When we tell people, just make sure that you submit, that's not what we're called to do. Say to the person in power, make sure that you're kind. Make sure that you're humble. Make sure that you're patient. Make sure that you're generous. The responsibility is with the person in power, not the person who's under that power. It's not my responsibility to be compliant with the police officer. It's his responsibility to be just to me. And until we get that lie out of our heads, we will never confront this evil. Because you realize how all of that speech, the, the calls of civility, just go along with what the police officer says, pray for your leaders, all of that speech assumes that they're the great ones, and we're the lesser ones, and our responsibility is to do what they want. And we believe that, and I'm done with this. Josh may throw me off the stage before then, but this, this, this is my last word. We do that because we believe that's how God relates to us. We actually believe God is our master and we're his slaves. And we're not and he is not. When scripture says Jesus is Lord, it doesn't mean he's your heavenly master who's like your earthly master, just nicer. God is not a slave owner. God is not a slave master, and we are not slaves. God does not dominate us. God does not threaten us. God is father, friend, lover, brother, but not master. When we say Christ is Lord, we're saying not he's like what we've known, but to say he is the one who's going to do away with what we've known. When we say he is Lord, what we mean is Nobody else can ever again claim to be Lord. You hear the difference? Not, he, not we know what lordship is because, look, this is what Master's already done to us. No, no, no. Jesus did away with all of that. He's the only one who gets to say he's Lord. And he's the Lord who doesn't master us. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. Because the lordship that he practices is not a domineering spirit. It's not a domineering power. He doesn't lord over us. What does he do? He washes our feet. The thing is, we're trying to serve a God who's our master. And he's trying to serve us and teach us that he doesn't want to master us. Think about what happens. I'm going to preach now. Somebody should get on the organ. So, John, yeah, that's what I need. That's what I need right there. John the Baptist and Peter parallel these stories. John the Baptist is baptizing. Jesus comes up. Jesus says, baptize me. What does John say? No, you should be baptizing me because the greater should baptize the lesser. I'm not worthy to even undo your sandals. I'm not worthy. And we think that's faithful speech. No, that's sin in us that talks like that. Jesus' response is, no, do righteousness. Baptize me. Then Peter, just a few hours before Jesus is arrested and killed, Jesus is wrapped in a towel, kneeling at Peter's feet with a basin of water, and what does Peter say? No. I should wash your feet. Why? Because the lesser should serve the greater. Notice how both John and Peter 
they assume that there is a greater and there is a lesser, and we have to maintain that order. And Jesus, in both cases, says, no, we don't. I am among you as one who serves. And notice what happens next with both Peter and John. The very next thing that happens in both of their lives is they lose faith. John is in prison. Are you the one, or do we look for another? And Peter is denying Christ. Because as long as you believe that God is a slave master, and you're a slave, you don't know him yet. He doesn't want to dominate you. Demons want to dominate. Evil wants to dominate. God wants to serve. And that's why when you become like God, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's just a way of saying God is love. God is more, rejoices more in what he gives to you than, you could ever, than he could ever rejoice in what you give to him. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need my prayer. He doesn't need my faith. He doesn't need my obedience. He doesn't need my love. God loves me, period. He's trying to wash my feet, and I'm trying to say, no, 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 that's not how order works. Damn that order. To hell with that order. That's evil. God does not want that kind of order. In Christ, there is no order like that. There is the peace of God. There is the love of friends. There is being one in Christ. But there is no haves and have-nots in Jesus. And I don't mean that spiritually. I mean, our lives should reflect that. I've preached myself into a corner. I don't know what to do now. <laughs> I probably should just stop. I... I'll leave you with this. Josh, jump up here. Um, this can happen, folks. I know, I know it, seems, it seems unreal. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of years of racism. But our kids deserve better than us just pass it off to them. And if we don't end it now, it will be our future. And if Christians don't end it, who is going to end it? And it isn't, let me just say this too, this isn't just a black-white issue. I mean, in this part of the world, that dominates the storyline. That isn't the only way. What we saw yesterday against brown people or against Asian Americans or what happened to native people. I mean, this spirit of domination is everywhere. It's part of why we take so much pride in our military. My dad was in the Marines. I'm very grateful to people who give their lives to serve in the military. What scares me is when we start talking about we have the greatest military in the world. Because that behind that statement is a belief that if you have enough power, you're right. And God isn't about that kind of power. See, when we honor veterans after they've fallen, we honor the right thing, that they gave their lives. That is right and honorable. But notice when we talk about how great our military is, we're not honoring anyone. We're honoring power. So celebrate those veterans who give their life, who give, whether they die or not. Anyone who gives their life to that kind of service, that's honorable. We know that service is honorable. But don't, don't dare celebrate supremacy. That's the devil's lie. 
Service is the truth. You hear the difference? Man, I really, I, I got to get off the stage. Come on. To one day be brave enough to stand up in front of a group of people and open with. Today we're going to talk about racism. Um, uh, this is what I want to say. To me, all the parts inside of me that are doing this right now, silently and in some of you my hope this is what I know it is and I'm just gonna repent openly to you guys I'm not I am this is what I think this looks like I'm more worried about the people that might unsettle that actually walk in that than the people you're talking to standing up for and that's not okay so that part inside of me that's going ah and many of you is the part we need to hand to God and allow him to speak into. And so, thank you for coming and sharing that. How brave are you? Gosh. Um, amen. All right, so we're going to pray and close. And Father, I just want to, I want to honor the parts of me that hear a message like that, that love to hear a message that draws all things together and makes me feel happy and makes me want to go and climb a mountain. And these messages that make me want to hide from people because they're the parts I don't want to be seen, whatever they may be, help us to start to talk more about all of those things. Help us to be a people who will repent. Forgive me. God, for trying to avoid conversations like this. Help us to be the people that carry the kingdom that looks like the supper in Revelation. Jesus, I just, here's my encouragement to you. Don't quench what just happened quickly. That was the purpose of that, I, I believe, was to unsettle. And so to either dismiss it quickly or to run from the feelings would be wrong. I've heard someone say this, it might have been Dr. Green, that you've truly been, been preached to when you've been changed and you don't even know really what happened. And God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Greens. I thank you for River City and what we get to do in this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. And please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com.